Welcome back, everybody, to kick off your week in the uh, world of hockey. It is the Monday edition of the Athletic Hockey Show. As always, Ian Mendes with you, and we are very happy to have Julian McKenzie sitting in for Haley Salvian. I think Haley kind of went deep into the night on Sunday, so we'll let her have the, uh, the, the Monday off of the podcast because she's going to be super busy, and that's some, something that we're going to be doing here, kind of teeing up uh, round two. got the Battle of Alberta. And that comes off the heels of some thrilling Game 7s on the weekend. So Julian and I will chat about that. We're going to have a couple of guests dropping by, including Jeremy Rutherford, who covers the St. Louis Blues. He'll chat Avs and Blues Round 2 for us. We'll also get James Myrtle to kind of do a, uh, I guess we'll call it a post-mortem on the Toronto Maple Leafs after another disappointing Round 1 exit, although this one seems a little bit different. So we'll, we'll get Myrtle to chat about that, Multiple Choice Madness, all of that, but my man, Julian McKenzie, uh, I got to say, going into the weekend, I was like, okay, we got five game sevens. This is awesome. Just give me one overtime. Give me give me one overtime. Give me one compelling game. Man, I feel like we had four of the, almost every game, I mean, every game was almost a one-goal game, a uh, couple of overtime games, that Toronto-Tampa nail-biter. Man, this one lived up to the hype. This weekend was amazing. I think... That weekend, in terms of every year I've watched like playoff hockey uh, and game sevens, I mean, first off, I mean, the fact we had as many game sevens, incredible enough as it is. But the fact that we had the two OTs on the Sunday, the Tampa-Toronto game going the way that it did, even Edmonton and, and LA, if it was a two-goal game, I mean, it was a one-goal game for a pretty long time until yeah. Connor McDavid put matters into his own hands. I think that might have been the greatest weekend of playoff hockey we have ever seen. No, I, I don't I, I'm calling it. I'm I don't know. I feel it. that feels like the like greatest. a classic recency bias where maybe, but like I'd love to know is there any other weekend of playoff hockey where the games were as close and the stakes were as high? And you could say like all right, fine, like a stand like a final game or whatever, but I mean that's one game. But you mean to tell me that like Five game sevens, two of them go to overtime, and four of them are one goal games. Has there ever been a better weekend of playoff hockey? Not one day, a better weekend of slate of games where virtually every game was worth watching down to the wire and enthralling hockey. Like, I, I, I mean, maybe you could say it's recency bias. I have a hard time thinking of any other weekend in playoff hockey history that compares to what we saw. Yeah, and you know what? Where where you have a great point is there's five game sevens, right? So maybe five of may, them. Yeah, five. So maybe in the past there was some great a gr- great weekend of some game threes or you know what have you. But boy, to get that and then to have them all live up to the hype. Like, look, even the game that was probably the least dramatic was Carolina Boston and even that Boston made it interesting in the final minute right they they scored to make it 3-2 and they kind of they pushed and pushed and um you know like you said McDavid has a signature moment i think that's one uh the i, I love that headline too breadwinner when yeah. our Artemi Panarin gets the goal i mean if you think about it too Johnny Goudreau Artemi Panarin with overtime goals and then Connor McDavid with the kind of dagger goal. Like those are like, that's what you want, right? That that's what you want your stars elevating. But what I also love too, Julian is game sevens also have a way of making household names out of 
I don't want to say average players, but guys who aren't household names. So I'm looking at you, Nick Paul. I'm looking at mm-hmm. you, Max. I'm, I'm looking at you, Max Domi. And mm-hmm. I'm really looking at you, Jake Ottinger. Because I got to say, uh, if we were handing out, and I, I sometimes I wonder about this. Like I, sometimes I wonder, should the league hand out like a, a top player after every round? Like, and then obviously wow. it, it, then it, it culminates with the Consmite Trophy, which is playoff MVP. But can we agree on this? That if we were handing out the MVP for round one, even though Dallas lost, their goalie Jake Ottinger would be the MVP of, of the first round, no? Yeah, he's the biggest reason I think the Stars were even able to make it a seven-game yeah. series in the first place. I don't know how you ranked, not ranked, but I don't know how you thought that series was going to play out. I thought the Flames were going to easily win that series. Yeah. I called two sweeps in that first round, Colorado-Nashville, and I thought Calgary was going to sweep Dallas. And then Dallas was kept in this series based off of Jake Ottinger. The saves he was making in the OT, he lost his stick at one point and had to make a save at point-blank range. Just before the Incredible. goal. Incredible. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, Jake Ottinger deserves a ton of praise for how he handled that first-round series. And a lot of players after the fact, that handshake line, seeing all those guys go into Jake Ottinger, just tapping him. Jacob Markstrom in the lineup, just, like, tapping him on the chest, just saying, like, you got a bright future, like, that was really awesome to see, and it was a shame that he wasn't able to get it out there. To your point about the awards, I know in the NBA, they just announced they're going to do conference final MVPs, and they've named them after Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, two players yeah. who have been compared with each other ever since like their college days. I don't know if you should do like an MVP for each round. But I am very into the idea of the NHL doing a conference final MVP. But the one thing, not to kind of add an extra wrinkle to this, but the one thing that I think about a lot with conference MVPs for the NHL, who are the two players who you could have as kind of equal MVP guys? Like CJ and I were talking about this on the CJ show. And he said, well, what if we did like Gretzky Lemieux? The thing with Gretzky Lemieux is those two guys are really great players, but a lot more people kind of see Gretzky as the superior to Mario Lemieux. Like the closest thing you could really do is like you wait like a decade and you name them after Sidney Crosby and Alexander Ovechkin, but they both played in the Eastern Conference. So do you just wait until like Austin Matthews and, and Connor McDavid get those names? Like, I don't know. That Maybe that's a little too deep in the rabbit hole, but I am all for uh, conference final awards. Yeah, listen, in baseball, they do it, right? The ALCS and the NLCS uh, has yes. an MVP like to, to go into the World Series. And um, the difference in hockey is that like, the, in baseball, the World Series MVP is just for what you did in the World Series. Whereas the Conn Smythe Trophy, it's cumulative, meaning it's what you did in round one all the way into round four. And um, man, uh, I have no problem with Gretzky Lemieux, though. Like, uh, to me, okay. Gretzky is the all-time best player statistically, all-time best player by, you know, most metrics that you would look at, he would he would be the best player. But boy, I think I could make a compelling argument Mario's number two. Uh, Absolutely. You know, Bob, Bobby Orr is probably in, not probably, he's in the mix. Um, Gordy Howe, based on longevity, is probably in the mix. But I think that's it. That's the conversation, right? Like, that's, that's it. I mean, Sid might be able to nudge his way in there when it's all said and done. But, but really, to me, if you went Gretzky, who really played... Imagine people threw their uh, their hands up and like, wow, Gretzky played with the Rangers. But no, look, look, he was he was a West Coast Western Conference guy in LA and Edmonton. Right, his glory days were in the the old Smite Division, and Mario was in the East. So I I like it. I 
I like the idea. Go conference final That's true. MVP. Yeah. That is true. St. Louis was all, I mean, they've been in the Western Conference for a while too. So, I mean, even if it was a brief, like, part of a year. And the only thing Gretzky's I would really, we really know about Louis, Gretzky yeah. as a blue was the, the Steve Eisenman OT goal, which uh, Gretzky had a stick on before it ended up going for Detroit. But, like, yeah, like, I guess I could understand that. I just still think that, like, there might, at least from like a like a visual standpoint, like a perceived added value for Gretzky over Lemieux. But absolutely, you can make the argument that Lemieux not only would be number two, but if he was healthy throughout the entirety of his career, would make would could easily be number one, or could at least challenge seriously to be number one over Wayne Gretzky easily. Yeah. Anyway, it's a it's a fun conversation to have. I'd love to hear from our listeners on that too, if they'd like to see. Because I do think that at some point, Julian, they need need to come up with awards named after Gretzky and Lemieux. Yes, and, they do. You know, and, and, and Bobby Orr, right? Like, to some extent, yeah. those are the three guys that, that I'd love to see awards named after. It's interesting, though, you brought up Sid and Ovi because the Caps and Penguins go out in round one. The Boston Bruins go out in round one. And, and you know from living uh, where you, you live in Montreal, I live in Ottawa, we're kind of in the east. We have watched the dominance for more than a decade of Pittsburgh, Washington, Boston. They're all out in round one. In the case of Washington and Pitt and Washington, Pittsburgh, Julian, they haven't won a playoff round since 2018. So this has been a while now that I guess here's my question. Uh, are we calling it? Is it over for Pittsburgh, Washington, Boston as elite teams? I'm not saying that they they won't maybe make the playoffs. But the idea that they are capital E elite is their window closed. It's been over. I mean, I think Pittsburgh, Washington, and Boston, those three teams, uh, as they are right now, could still make the playoffs next year. Even though they are on the other side of what I like to call their cup, maybe not cup window, but like cup staircase. Like you're, you're climbing up to be a contending team. You reach your peak and then you're on your way down, essentially. Like, those are still really good teams. Like, Washington could still make the playoffs next year. Boston, I know they're going to miss out on, well, not miss out, but we don't know what's going to happen with Patrice Bergeron's future. Who knows how they replace him if he leaves? But they still have David Pasternak and Brad Marchand and some other pieces on the back as well. They're still a playoff team. Uh, Pittsburgh, that's a big question with them with how they're going to handle uh, Evgeny Malkin and Brian Rust and some of those other guys. But if they say, all right, we're going to find a way to bring some of those guys at a reduced discount, that's still a team you, 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 can't, you can't sleep on. As long as Sidney Crosby is there, you can never sleep on those teams. But I'm not thinking of them in the same way as I would Tampa. I'm not thinking of them the same way I would Colorado. Florida, I think, has also jumped into that upper echelon. Imagine how we're going to talk about the Toronto Maple Leafs next year, even though they lost in the first round this year. I think a lot of people are going to think of them as a Stanley Cup contending team next year. And that's a lot higher than what we're going to think of the Pittsburgh Penguins, the Bruins, and the Capitals. So I think it's been done for those three teams. They could still win a series if given the opportunity, if the matchup is favorable. But I don't see either of those three teams as genuine Cup contending teams anymore. But when you you watch uh, Pittsburgh in New York on Sunday night, and the Penguins kept kind of, you know, coming back. They took the lead. They had the lead. Um, weren't you thinking all along that the Penguins were going to win it? I, I guess I was just conditioned to think, I've seen this movie so many times. And I know how it ends. 
It's with some random Penguins guy. And I went Teddy Bluger. That was my pick on Twitter. I'm like, Teddy Bluger is winning this game in overtime. Uh, but look, if to me, had Pittsburgh snuck out of that, and I, even Boston got to a seventh game too, I I wouldn't have hated their chances moving forward. You know, and that that's the one thing I think of is that, man, Pittsburgh was so close. Like to me, if Pittsburgh played Carolina in the next round and Carolina's goaltending is in shambles, even, even though Pittsburgh's was too, Boy, that that series would would be a lot closer than than maybe some of us would think. And I I just thought the whole time on Sunday, ah, Pittsburgh's winning this game. I've seen this too many times. I said uh, before the game started, if Sidney Crosby was playing that game, the Penguins are winning that series. Because I know the Rangers did everything they could yeah. in Crosby's absence uh, to try to get back, but Sidney Crosby made a difference in that series. You could say he was the best player in that series, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I thought they were going to win game seven. So the fact that the Rangers won it, I was very surprised at that. But I also picked the Rangers to win that series. And the fact that they came back in every game from game five on to game seven, uh, down 3-1, that is an impressive achievement on their part for a team that looked pretty down in the dumps at 3-1. But uh, yeah, I thought the Penguins were going to find a way to come out of it. And, you know, I, I look at this and I think, you know what I really like? I think a lot of us went into the weekend saying, there's no way the hockey gods are going to give us both the Battle of Alberta and the Battle of Florida, right? Like th- th- maybe they'll give us one, but we've watched this sport long enough to know they'll probably give us neither and we'll just have to <laughs> deal with it. And Dallas and LA are going to advance or what, you know, whatever it's going to be. Um, and, and, and I want to know as we sit here on the kind of the eve of round two, um, I'm going to lock you up in a room, okay? And I'm going oh to only, and I'm only going to tell you, Julian, you can only watch one of these series. I'm you're locked oh out. You only get to watch one series. Are you picking Oilers Flames or Panthers Lightning? Okay. Do I at least get to eat in yeah, this room? I will give you. You know, you can have the uh, food delivered to your door. We'll give okay. you water, bathroom breaks. But oh, Thank here you. the only Wi-Fi connection you have is to watch one of these games. And that's it. You have, But you have to pick one series. What are you picking? What are you picking? Flames, Oilers, Panthers, Lightning. I love how you just came up with that segment. Yeah. I, I literally yeah. just like, I'm like looking at you on Zoom. Yeah. I it's saw called, you like think of this Let's isolate Julian. It's a new segment that we'll have every that time. That is scary. Yeah. Uh, good Lord. Um, I'm really looking forward to that Panthers, Lightning series just because it could be uh, sh- it could be something like what we saw last year with those two teams play against each other. All the fighting and the goals scored and whatever. I can't say that I've seen a battle of Alberta though. Like not like this. When's the last time those two got two, two those two teams so, play against each other in the playoffs? How about this? Okay, I figured this out. I was in the I was in the ninth grade. The last oh time. God. So that that should give you. And now I have a daughter in the ninth grade. So that should just pretty much summarize how long it's been 1991 Oilers Flames and that was the series that was punctuated by two things that that people like look obviously you're you're younger than that but you may you may remember uh, or see Theo Fleury scores a game six overtime goal and does one of the most epic celebrations we've ever seen from a player sliding across the ice keeps the flames alive so that happened and then it goes to a game seven and the Oilers, I think, were down 3-0 like, in the third period of that game. 
and they came back and Essa Tegan and scored the overtime winner uh, and and took that series. So it's been 30 years. I think I might go Battle of Alberta just because it's been yeah. three decades. But, man, I don't know if you can go wrong with either one. Yeah, that Battle of Alberta, just because I've never really seen it, like, live, I would probably want to do that. Plus, like, I get to watch Connor McDavid go up against the Calgary Flames and see how the Flames game plan against him. Because I know Leon Dreisaitl is not completely healthy, so we may see a situation where Connor McDavid has to whole, put the whole team on his back. I want to see how that plays out plays out in a playoff series. So you know what? Very close, but I'm going to pick the Battle of Alberta over the Battle of Florida. Yeah, and, and look, there's probably no wrong answer. You know what I thought? I was looking this up too. I thought, like, this might be the best. Uh, with apologies to, I think the Minnesota Wild would be one team. And I think you can, well, again, it, it's tough to make an argument on, on maybe the Penguins, but really, really, I think these might be the best eight teams that are left. And Toronto probably certainly could could make a case, but I think these are the best eight teams left. Or like, it's very rare that we get four great matchups. I was looking at this, Julian. Like, look at the look at the point differential between these teams in the regular season. Carolina and the Rangers separated by six points. Calgary and Edmonton separated by seven points. Colorado, St. Louis, even though that's probably the biggest David Goliath uh, on, you know, just based on perception, um, there's only a 10 point difference there. Like, and, and, the, and the difference in regulation time wins was three between those teams. And then the biggest gap is Florida, Tampa. And I think there's a lot of people that would take Tampa over Florida. Yes. Uh, easily. I th- I think we're at a point now where the way that Tampa-Toronto series was going, you can make the argument that whoever came out of that series was going to beat the Florida Panthers. The way the Panthers played that first round, not as convincing as some people would have liked. They they The fact that the Washington Capitals kind of had them on the ropes at different points, like, I look at the Panthers very differently. So, and the Lightning, man, we thought they were going to be gassed and tired after that, for, during that first round. They look really good it's but Braden Braden point though the injury yeah. to, to him in game seven that is a huge question mark for the Tampa Bay Lightning so maybe Florida could still get out of that but like I I totally understand why people would pick uh the Tampa Bay Lightning in that series but remember Andre Vasilevsky he didn't look like the Andre Vasilevsky we've been accustomed to throughout that series so that also plays a role into it but the Florida Panthers also have Sergei Bobrovsky who is not Andre Vasilevsky but you know it's it's nutty that like to me, um, Andre Vasilevsky had an eight ninety seven save percentage in round one. Yes, and they won. Like you and never would have thought. You never like if you would have said before the series, Andre Vasilevsky is going to have an eight ninety seven save percentage and Tampa wins. Your immediate thought would be, wow, Jack Campbell probably just was terrible. Jack Campbell had a better save percentage than Vasilevsky in that really? series. Yeah, no, I think he was around nine, twelve, nine, whatever it was, somewhere in that in that ballpark. He's eight ninety seven. Who, Jack Campbell? Yeah, I thought he was. I thought he was. Uh, I thought he was ahead of Vasilevsky. I thought Vasilevsky was eight ninety seven. Both goalies were eight ninety seven. Oh, I thought. Okay, well, there you go. Like, look at that. After seven games, they're both eight ninety seven. They well, end the series at both of the same. <laughs> but you're right. Like, I I think Andre Vasilevsky below nine hundred. I'd be like, well, they're shelling this guy. Yeah. Oh, it, it, it's crazy to me. That that they won that series, but I think the Braden Point thing is too that if if he's out and it looked bad, like the way he went down and clutched his leg, you're like, I don't know, I don't know what he did, but um, 
they don't win those last two cups without Braden Point. Like he back to back years of scoring fourteen uh, playoff goals, like twenty eight playoff goals. A lot of them big clutch ones um, to to ice series and stuff. To not have him, I I just don't see it. Like that that to me that's the equivalent of asking Florida to win without either Barkov or Huberdeau. That's how much I think of Braden Point. Um, yep. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I think with Point, just with what he's able to provide in the playoffs, he's just, he's emerged as a big playoff performer for for the Lightning. They need him in the lineup. And the thing is with the Lightning, even though they have Stamkos, they have Kucherov, Anthony Sorelli's been asked to do a lot defensively. Vasilevsky, we mentioned earlier. It's just funny to think, like, without Braden Point, you have questions about the Tampa Bay Lightning getting through a series just because of the wear and tear that they have. So that's how instrumental a guy like Braden Point will be. But the third line with with Brandon Hagel and, and Nick Paul, I mean, they they played their asses off in Game 7. They're going to get asked to take some of that responsibility too. Ross the boss, Colton as well. Like, they have depth. They have a lot of pieces who could help out in a pinch. So even though there are questions you could ask with the Tampa Bay Lightning, them not having Braden Point, they're so deep at forward that maybe there's a chance they're able to withstand Braden Point not being at 100%. It's it's nuts to me, like, and I think I've learned my lesson here, like, until somebody beats Tampa, they've earned the right to be the favorite, right? Uh, you know what I think is is nuts? is So Tampa's now won, what, nine straight playoff series, right? They've won nine straight, Something four, like four, that. yeah, nine. They're, they're not even halfway to the record, which is 19 straight playoff series by those old uh, Islanders teams of, of the early eight. Can you imagine winning 19 playoff series like that's goat stuff you know what like I, I know we talk about there's all sorts of amazing records in hockey history and and you know i i still think like gretzky's all-time points record and goals right i think a lot of that is untouchable i think the islanders winning 19 straight playoff series is as untouchable as any record in hockey i think it, i think like if the Guys on Tampa, the core that they have might have been a little younger, a little fresher. Maybe they challenge that record. I I don't think they get close to 19. But considering the fact that the Lightning have been able to win the series that they've won, not only amidst a flat cap and salary cap, uh, just salary cap era period, but amidst a global pandemic with all of the constraints on scheduling and all that. I'm not going to say it's more impressive than what the Islanders did, but you could at least say, and I know we've had this discussion sort yeah. of before, the, the the Lightning are very close to leaving no doubt that they are the team of the salary cap era, and they might be the team of the century to this point. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. All right, Julian, uh, time for us to, to sink our teeth into what might have been, um, boy, maybe the most uh, compelling Game 7, even though there was two that went to a to an overtime. Toronto-Tampa was uh, some kind of theater on Saturday night in Toronto, and certainly the, uh, the fallout from that loss is going to be felt for uh, weeks, if not months, and to help us uh, kind of navigate some of that, uh, James Myrtle is uh, dropping by the podcast here. And uh, I know, James, you did, you did the Leafs Report podcast on Sunday with Jonas Siegel. And I'm wondering what the and I, and I read down goes Brown's <laughs> kind of two person uh, kind of breakdown of should they do this should they not do that I know there's a lot of emotions flying around Leafsland on this Monday after you dropped that podcast and I'm sure you've started to receive some feedback like like what's the feeling in Toronto is there a consensus feeling or is it kind of all over the map as as kind of down goes Brown pointed out uh, in his column today. You know, it's interesting. I think, I think this year's kind of feels different in Toronto, where people are kind of just more sad than angry. You know, they're not, they're not even like, they're not even mad at Dubis or you know, in previous years it was you know fire everybody and all this stuff. And this year it's kind of just like it feels like to the fan base that the Leafs did everything, almost everything that they could. They just ran up against a really, really good team and they lost by one goal in Game Seven. And it's kind of, it's almost like an existential problem for the Leafs and they, they, it's almost like they feel cursed and they just no matter what they do 115 point season 60 goal scorer GM who makes a lot of great moves and it still doesn't drop for them and I think that that's if I had to sum it up I mean there's certainly people at different extremes and everything but I think the overall feeling is kind of as as down goes Brown wrote in his piece the kind of the the way that his head feels about it is that this is a good team with a good management group and a good coach. And they just, they fell just short. And that's not the way that it was in, in previous years. So with that in mind, should that mean Brendan Shanahan, Kyle Dubas and Sheldon Keefe don't have to worry about job security this off season? They should be able to, yeah, a lot of people are saying, Hey man, we're team run it back with the core. They should also expect those three guys to be back too. Yeah. I mean, I think that the run it, back philosophy is even more rest resting with kind of the the front office the vision the trust the process all that kind of stuff is is what people are talking about with run it back because there are going to be changes on the ice right like it's it's not just with the salary cap, with all of the the UFAs, the RFAs, with what's happening with their goaltending situation, they're going to going to be different players. So, really, if you're saying run it back, you're really talking about Shanahan, the Shanna plan, uh, Dubas, Sheldon Keefe. I mean, I think that that's a core part of what people are talking about, and I'm seeing a lot more of that sentiment than than fire everybody. You know, the, the Leafs had a 115 point season. Do you know how many 115 point seasons there have been in NHL history? Not very many. I'll- there's a little more than a little more than 30 ever by any team. So, it, you know, the Leafs did something that they've never done in franchise history. They exceeded their their franchise best by a lot. 
They had players on the team that did things that had never been done before in franchise history, like Austin Matthews. They had a good season. And to blow it up over that, I, I bet you if you go down that list of the teams that have had 115-point seasons, I bet you no one fired the GM after those seasons. Listen, you're talking to a guy who watched uh, – I, I was in Ottawa. They finally get to the Stanley Cup final, and they fired John Muckler. But that's another story for another day. <laughs> um, I'm curious. I want to play a little audio here for our uh, our listeners here because th- there was a comment that Sheldon Keefe made post game Saturday, uh, James, that has certainly gained a lot of traction, and that is um, the fact that hey, like, like the handshake line felt different this year. So I just want to go ahead and play that audio for our listeners. This is Sheldon Keefe post game on Saturday. We got a lot of a lot of respect uh, in that in that line from from their team, which is nice to see. Um, there's a much different tone, a much different feeling of respect on the other side from what we've experienced previously. Uh, I think we're we're certainly earning respect uh, in the league, um, but again, we're not in the respect game; we're in the winning game. All right, James. So look, a lot of people were mocking that comment from Sheldon Keefe as if to say, like, "Oh, look, like, look, now they got respect in the handshake line." Like, what what was your comment or um, sorry, your takeaway? from that particular comment from Sheldon Keefe. I actually read that as kind of a comment on what happened with Montreal in the handshake line last year that with a story that was never told. Like the Canadians were throwing shade at the players or the coaching staff. And the, I, don't, I don't know exactly what happened, but that was sort of what stood out to me about that comment. I don't think it was, I don't think it was Sheldon Keefe patting himself or the team on the back necessarily as it was. It, it, you know what it is almost, guys? It's like, we didn't embarrass ourselves in in this series, which they they have previously. The Montreal series was an embarrassment for the Leafs. You're up 3-1. You're the heavily favored team. You've had this amazing regular season. You've won your first division title in decades. And then to do what they did, it was very embarrassing. So not only did they not get respect in the handshake line, they, they probably didn't earn it, right? So it's more like a... For one, I, I don't know what, what happened there, but... I think what in the handshake line, what he's saying is that the Lightning said, you have an amazing team. It was really difficult to play against you guys. And you you tested us right to our limits. And that's a team that's seen everything in the playoffs the last two years. And I think that that's really what he was talking about. So to keep on Sheldon Keefe here, I, I know you've already kind of mentioned that maybe it doesn't really make sense to let him or or some of the other big figureheads in the Leafs organization go. But there is an available coaching candidate, and uh, I'm sure we all know the name Barry Trotz. We all know about his track record. We all know about what he's done as an NHL head coach. He's out there. Do, what do you think about the idea that you know maybe the Leafs should look into replacing Keefe with Barry Trotz? Well, I think that they should look at everything and think about everything. I just think that if you commit to this management group, which I think they're going to and which I think they should – they're going to want to bring Sheldon Keefe back. I think that's the bottom line is that they're not going to want to make a change. So how much time should we spend on the Barry Trotz discussion with the Leafs? The interesting thing is, you know, like the coaches did a really good job with the Leafs this year. I mean, part of the reason why they had 115 points, I mean, the the Leafs goaltending was a problem all year, especially their backup goaltending. They did not have a good save percentage. Jack Campbell had really struggled at periods in time. Despite that, they had a 115-point season. And how they did that was the coaching staff, they overhauled the coaching staff. They brought in two new assistants. They completely changed their penalty kill. They completely changed the power play. Their systems play, their defensive play was better this year than it's been in, again, decades in Toronto. That was Sheldon Keefe. 
Now, can you quibble with some of the things he did? Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he leaned in and, and, and he, he was leaned in on toughness, which the Leafs don't have a lot of in the first couple games of the series. And that didn't really pan out well. And the other big thing too, is that the power play was just not very good in the playoffs for the third straight year under Sheldon Keefe. And that's certainly a black mark against him. Well, it's funny you bring up the power play, James, because I think obviously when you think of the power play, you think of the the big the big stars. And and coming into this year's playoffs, there was a lot on Marner and Matthews, and this they had to change the narrative. So another first round exit, but they were a little uh, Marner in particular was a little bit more productive at times in this series. Do did Marner and Matthews shake the label, James, or do they still kind of carry around the postseason underachiever uh, label? I mean, they played well, even in that game seven. I mean, they created the one goal. Do you want them to create more than one goal? Yeah. Do you want the power play to be better than 11% at five on four? Yeah. But if if you look overall at the series, that was by far their best line. And I would say that was the best line in the whole series. If you include Tampa or you include the Leafs, they really carried the mail there. And I think part of the reason the Leafs lost is they didn't get enough from their other lines. They only got one five on five goal from their third line. I believe they only got one five-on-five goal from their fourth line. Uh, John Tavares and, and William Nylander for long stretches in the series weren't productive. So to put it on on Marner and Matthews when they did deliver offensively, uh, they did deliver the only offense they got in Game 7. The only place you'd want them to be better is on the power play. It's going to stick with them, Ian, just because they didn't win a playoff series, and I think that that's fair. But if you're going down the list of of who to place blame on in this series for not winning – they're near the bottom of the list. Austin Matthews was their best player in the series. I mean, the bottom line. And and Mitch Marner was probably right there with him. Is there a big contract or someone on this Leafs team who the organization should consider moving on from this offseason? Well, I mean, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that the most complicated situations for them in terms of the cap are going to be, what do they do in goal? What do they do with Jack Campbell? There's not a lot of UFA goalies available. He's potentially going to be able to command a lot in free agency. Uh, he's on the wrong side of 30 next season. Do you want to give him term? Do you want to give him a lot of dollars? Is what you saw from him this year where he was fantastic in the first half and then got injured and really fell off in the second half and I think was was decent in the playoffs? Do you want to commit term and dollars to that? Do you want to go in another direction? There's not a lot of UFA goalies available that are really intriguing. Um, you know, they got Peter Morazic as the backup who they're going to have to try and find a way to disappear that $3.8 million contract. I think what they do in goal is going to be one of the big discussions of the off season. And the other contract that I think that they could look at moving on from is Jake Muzzin, who's making 5.6, who's going to be 33 years old, uh, who has slowed down, had a lot of injuries, and they've got some kids coming on the back end who are going to push him for minutes, Rasmus Sandin, Timothy Lilgren. Um, so I, those are probably the big ones. And the other one, Ilya Mikheyev is a UFA, and I just don't see any way they're going to be able to bring him back. So as I said you know, earlier on the show, that there's going to be changes in Toronto. The question is, how big, like how how much does, does the group change? You know, if you change both your goalies and you trade Jake Muzzin and you lose Ilya Mikheyev, all of a sudden you're, maybe that's not what we think of as the core in Toronto. That's not the big four or the big five, but it's pretty close. You know, it's certainly like the next level of the core that's going to be changed. 
Well, listen, James, we'll leave it there. I know it is kind of the locker room clean out media availabilities on Tuesday, and I'm sure there'll be lots of uh, uh, stuff for us to uh, to read and sink our teeth into uh, from that. But in the meantime, we do appreciate you dropping by, filling us in on, on the Maple Leafs uh, after that Game 7 loss, and I'm sure we'll do this again down the road. All right. Thanks, guys. All right, Julian, uh, as we start to kind of focus on round two, I I think this is such a fun matchup because they met in the Stanley Cup playoffs last year. It didn't go the way that St. Louis wanted, but uh, it might be different this time around. Jeremy Rutherford does a bang-up job covering the Blues for us uh, with The Athletic and uh, nice enough to join us here on the eve of Game 1 to set up this series. Uh, Jeremy Rutherford, how are you doing on this Monday? Oh, real good, Ian and Julian. How are you guys doing? Hey, we are... We're good. We're having uh, we're having a great time. Uh, you you told us this. Listen, let's peel back the curtain here. Tell our <laughs> listeners what Tuesday looks like for Jeremy Rutherford. <laughs> well, I'm sure we're all in the same boat, all of us who are covering these NHL playoffs for the Athletic. But yeah, we didn't know what time, what day, in fact, that this series was going to start. It wasn't known until last night's finish in Calgary, and so uh, it looks like Blues and Colorado will start. Tuesday night, it'll be a uh, 8.30 central start. So I'm going to jump on a plane at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning and fly to Denver, go straight to the morning skate. We'll see what's going on with the Blues at the skate. And then the game starts at uh, 8.30 central time, as I mentioned, and probably wrap up the story for the Athletic at about 2 in the morning. So it might be pulling a little 24-hour shift tomorrow. Oh, man. I mean, I get it. It's because the playoffs, but, like, that is tough. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it, first round with uh, Mike Russo, we we did a lot of those nights together, uh, Minnesota, St. Louis. And I, I don't know, maybe your body clock gets a little adjusted to it this time of year, but it's it's all fun. And, you know, the adrenaline's pumping. You're in the arena. The games have been so good. And this series expects to be a good one, too. So hopefully that'll uh, kind of be my energy drink. Now, here's here's a quick question for you, too. Like whenever I have an early morning flight. And I know I got to be at the airport at like 4.30 or 5. I have a terrible <laughs> sleep. Like I'm up every I'm up every hour. Like, oh, did I miss my flight? Did I miss, how, like, are you able to sleep for four or five hours in a row? Or are you like me? You're up every every 45 minutes. No, exact same. Yeah. If So I'll probably go to bed tonight. I don't know, about 10 o'clock. But yeah, probably wake up about two or three in the morning, expecting that alarm to go off and, and be ready to go. Uh, but uh, hey, try to get it all ready and get packed and make sure you don't forget a couple ties in your belt and uh, we're on our way for four days in Denver. Okay, so let's try to focus on the series a little bit here. Uh, the St. Louis Blues, they get through the first round against the Minnesota Wild. I have to admit, I thought the Minnesota Wild were going to beat the St. Louis Blues. I was wrong. I know I wasn't alone in thinking the Wild were going to win, uh, but I think the Blues have been slighted a little bit and they're going to likely be slighted again against a team in the Colorado Avalanche that a lot of people expect uh, to make the Stanley Cup final out of the Western Conference. Do you think the Blues are the biggest underdogs left in these Stanley Cup playoffs? Yeah, probably so. Probably so. You know, I know some other series, uh, there's going to be some favorites, but definitely not a situation like Colorado and St. Louis, Julian. And and you're right. You know, uh, Minnesota was picked by a lot of the national pundits. And don't think that Craig Bruby didn't see that. He said that we just beat a team that we weren't expected to to beat. And now they're going to play Colorado. And, and last year they were swept by Colorado. And uh, Colorado comes in having swept Nashville in the first round. So they're really rolling. They will have eight full days uh, rest uh, Colorado. So that's going to help. Obviously, come playoff time, everybody's a little bit banged up. Will there be a little rust with the Avalanche? You know, Craig Bruby was asked that a couple of days ago, and he said perhaps so, but he thinks teams get it back 
uh, pretty quickly. You know, if there is any rust with Colorado, if that's a huge if, uh, you know, you got to jump on that game. You can't lose that game three to two because Colorado is going to come back storming in game two when, when they don't have some rust. So if there is a little bit, you know, that's the one kind of in, you know, if the Blues can slide into that little door and, and win a game, perhaps they can make this, you know, a lengthy series. We'll see. You know, you, you mentioned that they met last year and it was a 4 nothing sweep for Colorado. What what are some of the lessons that maybe St. Louis learned last year? I know it's a different team, but are there some lessons they learned last year that they can take into this year's meeting? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, as far as the context, the Blues found out the day before, maybe just hours before the series was going to start, that David Braun, their leading point producer, was going to miss the series with COVID. I mean, maybe if it went five or six games, he could come back, but because it was a sweep, he did not play. Uh, Perron was a point per game player. And that's not to say the Blues would have won one game, two games, and you know made it a longer series against the Avs, but it was tough news to get you know, for the St. Louis Blues. Also, if you guys uh, remember, Nazem Kadri had the big hit on Justin Falk. Uh, he was lost for the last couple of games of the series, as was uh, Robert Bortuzzo. He had a head injury, and he was out. So the Blues didn't have their, their full arsenal, but the Colorado was the better team and deserved to win that. You know, takeaways, I don't know if there's like, a, none of the Blues are talking about it this week. Hey, here's what we need to do differently against the Colorado Avalanche compared to last year. But I will point out one thing on the ice, guys, is Brandon Saad was a huge factor for Colorado last year. He's a good net front presence. He's got some speed and he gives a ton of depth to your forward lines. Well, guess what? He switches sides. He's on the blue side. And he scored a big goal the other night in the win over uh, Minnesota, in Minnesota, to, to push it to uh, game six and and then the Blues uh, wrapped up the series. But Brandon Saad has been good. He's he's one of those 9-20 goal scorers for the Blues this season. And look, he's not going to be a difference maker. I get it. Colorado's got plenty of other talent, and they replaced him fine, getting 119 points in the regular season. Uh, but I do think that's a little bit of a difference for the Blues that they didn't have last year against Colorado. That is so insane that the Blues were able to have all those 20-goal scorers on their team. Uh, for this season, and I can, and I mean, even though Colorado looks like the better team against St. Louis, like imagine trying to be Jared Bednar, trying to game plan against each of these forward lines, and thinking, okay, well, Kale McCarr has to go up against this line, uh, and and some of my other defense are going to have to go against these other guys. Like in theory, I mean, that shouldn't be a sweep just purely off the fact that the Blues have depth at goal scoring on every single line. Do you see that? playing out similarly, like they should be able to get a, at least a win or two. Yeah. And I think that's perhaps why blues fans feel a little bit slighted when they see where the blues are predicted. in, in some of these series, obviously they understand Colorado is a terrific team, but they felt going into that matchup against Minnesota, that that was going to be difficult for Minnesota to deal with. What you're talking about, Julian, is that that balance there. Look, you can throw Kaprizov up against whatever line you want to, you know, then you have the Fiala line and he did absolutely nothing in the series. You know, he Boldy and, and Goudreau, uh, but the Blues are able to throw the O'Reilly line at you. They can come at with, with you the uh, uh, Robert Thomas, Tarasenko, Buchnevich line. And look, if you want to call it a third line, you're talking Braden Shen, Jordan Cairo, Ivan Barbashev, and there's three more 20 goal scorers coming at you. So it's a great third line. <laughs> there, there are matchup issues for sure, I think, for the opposition. You know, Jeremy, this this wouldn't be a Blues-related podcast if we didn't talk about the goaltending because it was yeah. all season long. It was, uh, you know, Ville, uh, Ville Husso or Jordan Biddington, and we saw it play out in the first round, right? They basically split the uh, the duties against Minnesota. Uh, where are we at now? Like, is this is does Jordan Biddington, who backstopped his team to a Stanley Cup in 2019, does he have his net back, 
or are we still kind of on a kind of a game to game basis here? Yeah, and it's going to be Jordan Bennington's net for game one against Colorado for sure. Uh, Billy Huso did get the start for game one against Minnesota in the previous series. 37 save shutout. He was dynamite. If you would have put money, uh, who would be in the net the rest of that series, you would have said it would be Billy Huso for sure after that game one performance. Uh, but he stalled a little bit. Uh, it wasn't just his his fault. You know, Blues losing back-to-back games against Minnesota as the Wild took a 2-1 lead in that series. But Craig Burby felt, you know, he'd, he'd mix it up a little bit and throw Jordan Bennington in there. And look, Jordan Bennington could have been inconsistent and it could have been a decision that didn't work out well for the Blues. But I keep saying this, Jordan Bennington found a little bit of that 2019 Stanley Cup magic and he's played very well. So he won the final three games of that series a 943 save percentage. It looks like he's got his mojo back, guys. And, you know, could he have a hiccup and we see Billy Huso back in the net? I suppose. But right now it's Jordan Bennington's and he he's the story here in St. Louis uh, right now, playing really good hockey. And it looks like the team has a lot of confidence again in him. So if Jordan Bennington is back in the net, what does that mean for Billy Huso, either for the rest of the series, but also for the summer, as he is going to be an unrestricted free agent? Yeah, Julian. So, you know, if if Bennington were to falter, they would have no problem putting Huso back in there. They still really believe in him. He's been super good all year. I mean, the only the fact that the Blues really got some momentum after they put Bennington back in is the reason that that Bennington's staying in there. Um, so if they had to go to Huso, they would. And then in terms of his future, he's going to be an unrestricted free agent. And for, you know, the first game of this series against Minnesota, you thought, wow, he's going to uh, be really good here in the playoffs and write a big ticket and unrestricted for agency. And he still may do that. You know, I, I think that the blues are going to probably have a tough time re-signing him because you're talking, let's say he gets three, three, five, you know, somewhere in that range, you know, uh, Bennington's already at 6 million. Can you afford to pay nine or 10 million to your goaltenders doubtful? So, you know, it's hard to guess as we sit here today, but the, the blues are probably going to have to bring in a, a different backup. Uh, but if Huso gets back in there, he's probably going to, you know, continue to cement his uh, unrestricted free agent ability uh, status and teams around the league, I think, are going to really take a, a long look at him. Uh, as as we wrap this up here, a uh, a final question to you on uh, what's the blue strategy here in shutting down Nate McKinnon and Kale McCarr, who arguably might be as good a you know kind of uh, forward and, and defense combo as you can find in the league. And it feels like if you know, and obviously Ryan O'Reilly is the name that comes top to, top of mind. But but like, what is the strategy? What's the 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 thought process here of how St. Louis might be able to silence those big guns from from Colorado yeah Ian I feel like you sat in in my uh, meeting with my editor when we planned our story for tomorrow at the athletic because we'll be writing how can the blues contain these guys and so I'm going to be working on that this afternoon it'll be up at the athletic tomorrow uh, but uh, it's going to be tough obviously those guys are, are tremendous especially with McCarr you know what Ruby said a couple days ago he said what McCarr does is not normal you should not have to worry about a defenseman with that kind of skill on the back end here's the thing you use the word loosely when you say limit, but they limited Kaprizov to seven goals in the series. And three of them were power play, but it really did feel like he didn't do as much as he could have. For anybody who paid played close, close attention to that series, you know, Kaprizov could have done even more. Uh, but I felt like the Blues, Nick Letty, Colton Pareko did a pretty good job against him. Uh, Pareko and Falk playing 30 plus minutes in one of those games. Um, So I think the biggest thing is going to be, you know, the same cliches. They're just going to have to limit the space. Uh, But the tough part about doing this against McKinnon and Landeskog and Rantanen and these guys, as opposed to Kaprizov, they're bigger bodies. And so I think Kaprizov has uh, unreal shiftiness once he gets into the zone and he has a tremendous shot. Uh, But I think it's going to be a little more difficult this series 
or smaller guys, you know, like Nick Letty, um, Justin Falk, even though Falk plays bigger than his size, for them to, you know, contain a number of these guys just because of that extra beef. Well, listen, Jeremy Rutherford, we look forward to that uh, that piece that you uh, hinted at there of, of how the Blues might be able to shut down that high-octane offense from the Avs, and we'd certainly look forward to your coverage of this entire series. And, hey, listen, fingers crossed for Blues fans that uh, this one is uh, a little bit more closely competitive than the, uh, the sweep we saw last year. So look forward to your coverage uh, in the next couple of weeks, and uh, thanks for dropping by the podcast. Yeah, anytime, boys. Thanks a lot. All right, before we get to multiple choice madness, to wrap up uh, the Monday edition of the pod, Julian, uh, as we are recording on this Monday, not one but two pieces of coaching news uh, coming down the uh, the wire for us. Let's start with the, I think, the bigger piece of news which comes out of the desert. Peter DeBoer is out in Vegas. And uh, we, we listen, we've had Jesse Granger. Uh, you've done podcasts with Jesse. I do as well. Um, it was really interesting what was going on at the end of the year. It felt like the dynamic amongst Robin Leonard Pete DeBoer and, you know, Kelly McCrimmon was off. Something was off in that GM coach goalie trifecta. And now we know Pete DeBoer is out in Vegas. If you were looking at this, is are you looking at Barry Trotz and saying that's where Barry Trotz is going to ha- end up? Is that where Barry Trotz really wants to go? Considering how they handle coaches and players over there? I mean, considering the... You know, they got to win at all costs. The mentality they got going on there, I, I think if I'm Barry Trotz, I kind of want something a little bit more stable, personally. I kind of feel with the way that Vegas is kind of doing everything right now, flying by the seat of their pants, I understand the talent that they have that's there, the division that they're in. But, I mean, that's funny. You know, it is Vegas. I think there's a bit of a risk there with with getting that opportunity but there is a high chance of reward and, and Barry Trotz knows a thing or two about playing against Vegas and games that matter of course um I don't I'd be surprised if he wanted to go to Vegas considering how they've been handling a few things and some of the players uh that are there and the way the roster is like I mean I wonder how long the window actually is set for for Vegas with the players that they have it's not to say it's closer to its end but it's not necessarily at the beginning uh, so I, I'd be very surprised if Barry Trotz goes there. But then again, knowing Vegas, like they're probably going to do everything they can to to get a guy like him in their steed. That would be pretty wild. Okay, hold on. You realize Barry Trotz is coming fresh off of working for Lou Lamorello. So he knows yeah, all about true. working for cold, calculated <laughs> that's true. people. He's going to be like, true. what do you mean? This seems warm and fuzzy. That's true. Here in Vegas. Uh, but yeah, look. And so, Washington too, considering all the, I mean, it, it yeah. ultimately be, it'll be a money thing, but like, yeah, okay, that's fair. Yeah. He knows a thing or two about cold decisions being made. All right. That's, yeah. that's fair. So, uh, that's, but, you know what? Just just put him to Vegas. But man, Peter DeBoer is out and it's it's remarkable because, you know, Pete DeBoer goes from San Jose, goes to Vegas. You know, he, he, he had some great teams in Florida that couldn't quite get them over the hump, took the Devils to the cup. Like, I wonder if Pete DeBoer... Does he has he now reached like the Bruce Boudreaux status, which is you know what guy can win in the regular season, it's the postseason. I, I now he does have that one trip to the final with uh, with the Devils, but is that going to kind of become his calling card right now? That hey, you want some regular season success, no problem. DeBoer's your guy. You want some postseason success, uh, it's going to get a little bit more a little bit more tricky with him. Yeah, it's a shame too because he's already been to the final. But like, yeah, I feel like that reputation might already be on him, which might mean that uh, some teams who want that postseason success uh, could 
invest in him. They want him. I wonder a team like a, a market like Detroit, for example, that's trying to get to the next step. Wouldn't a guy like Pete DeBoer kind of work out for them? Just the guy who can at least kind of help them get to the next level. Yep. Uh that's that's just like something I've just kind of half baked thought here, but like I, I wonder if that's the case. There's nothing wrong with being that coach if you're able to kind of help a core along and then from there uh, help a team get to that next level. It can happen before it could happen. Uh, so I, I I think if he gets that reputation, I can understand why. But there are ways to you know supersede that and or get past that reputation. It's better than being a known as a coach who can't get to the playoffs. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great point. Uh, and we talk about Barry Trotz. The Islanders announced on Monday, Julian, that Lane Lambert has assumed the head coaching duties. Now he's not a household name, but Lane Lambert was the associate coach in New York under Barry Trotz. He was also under Barry Trotz in uh, Washington, right, and and helped them win a Stanley Cup there. So kind of a trusted. Um, associate for uh, for Barry Trotz. He takes over. In the press release, Lou Lamorello says, in my opinion, he is the right person to coach this team. Um, I guess my only thought is, these are some big shoes to fill for Lane Lambert because Barry Trotz took them to back-to-back conference finals and including the second one in which they lost by a goal to Tampa. Could have, I mean... I think Islanders Habs in the Cup final. I think a lot of people are thinking that ends up going New York's way. Mm-hmm. They were within a hair of, you know, getting to the Cup, and now Lane Lambert has to take over. Boy, this is a this is a tough act to follow when Barry Trotz is your is your not only is your mentor but he's your predecessor here on the job. Yeah, and and Lou Lamorello putting it out there saying, "Hey, I think he is the guy to do it." Remember, he did. He said he didn't consult his players on this. He just feels that Lane Lambert is the guy. And hey, maybe the players in the locker room actually like him. Uh, I think Lane Lambert, uh, I don't know that much about him. He does have a lot of big shoes to fill in that job with the Islanders. I mean, yes, they missed the playoffs, but a lot of guys in that locker room definitely feel they're still a playoff team. Uh, I think that with the way the Islanders are now, if they didn't have that long road trip to start off the year they're at least a little bit closer to making the playoffs this year um yeah i i i, I feel bad for lane just because he's gonna he's in that situation where he's gonna have to f- just essentially following up from a really great coach in barry trotz i know it's a guy he's worked with for a long time but that's a pretty tough situation for him to be in and if it doesn't work out for him that year like good lord like how's that gonna work how's that gonna reflect on him how's that gonna reflect on lou lamorello after that all right, Julian, uh, wrap it up the uh, the show as we always do on a Monday with a little fun, with a little multiple choice madness. So got a couple questions here for us to kick around to wrap up the pod. Uh, let me start with this one. You know, if you looked on Twitter on the weekend, look, Twitter's a sour place to begin with, but when your team loses in a game seven, things get super sour. And then when you feel like the referees may have played a hand, well, now you're going next level. So I want to know, Julian. Which fan base do you think has a bigger reason to be upset with the officiating with the referees after losing a game seven? Is it A, the Pittsburgh Penguins, or B, the Toronto Maple Leafs? Man, uh, I, I, I think the Penguins here, because I'll say this. I said the uh, interference call on Justin Hall was a joke. Not because it wasn't the call to make, but because of the fact that 
you know, considering what gets let go in a game seven, I was genuinely surprised uh, and subsequently dunked on for thinking that a call like that would take place in that game seven. The Marcus Patterson head helmet removal thing. I'm yeah, I'm surprised that didn't get called like at all. Like, I, I don't know if Pedersen was would have been in the right to put his helmet back on and kept playing. Like, I know the rule is to you have to skate off the ice. You can't play without a helmet. But I don't know if he would have been able to put the helmet back on. But if you look at how the helmet was removed, if that referee who was like a couple feet away just turns around and looks, that's a penalty call. That is a penalty call. So I completely understand why Pittsburgh Penguins fans feel some type of way about that. That literally changed the game on its head and ultimately led to the Rangers winning. Yeah, and not only that, I mean, Zibanejad scores right after. And then go to overtime, though, and and it was Brock McGinn, right, who got the the holding call on, yeah, on, uh, on, 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 uh, on Keandre on Miller. Miller. And, like, do I think that was a penalty? Yeah, I think it was a penalty. kind of gets his arms around him, but, like... Game seven overtime, like you, you know, I, I like if I'm a Penguins I it was a penalty fan, shot, honestly, yeah, yeah, I, you know, like, oh man, can you imagine if it was a penalty shot? Like, oh my god, the, the amount of pressure. But I, I, I think I agree with you. Like, it's just weird the amount of stuff though that goes unchecked for that hall one to be called. You're like, eh, I guess, but you know, Stamkos is right there putting his arm up as it's happening. Hey, like, yep. But but Toronto fans, I think I think look, I think Toronto and Pittsburgh fans certainly have some reason to be sour. But I think Pittsburgh might be a, a touch more, especially when you factor in they gave up a power play goal in overtime, and uh, and that's how they lost. Yeah, so. and and the fact that the official, at least from what I saw in the replay, it didn't look as if he he saw what was happening behind the net there. So like right. like if you're a Penguins fan, you're just thinking, God, if he like turned around, he just saw what happened. Maybe things would be different. But yeah, with the Leafs, like in in any other game, in a regular season game, I get if they call it, it's one thing. But considering what gets let go in game sevens, considering what gets let what gets let go in a playoff game, period. Like I, I I thought it was just really surprising that the call was made the way that it was. Doesn't mean it wasn't right, but considering what gets let go, I was very surprised that that got called. Okay, last question to wrap it up. I'm going to ask you to look into your Monday edition of the Athletic Hockey Show Crystal Ball. Okay, just the Monday show. We only we get a crystal ball. There you go. I'm going to read out three statements. You okay. tell me which is the one you're most comfortable saying, yeah, that's going to happen. That's going to be true. As I look into my uh, Monday crystal ball, yeah, this is going to be true. Okay, so here you go. Uh, statement A. Patrice Bergeron will not return to the Boston Bruins. Statement B, one of Evgeny Malkin or Chris Letang will not come back to Pittsburgh. Statement C, Jason Spezza will retire. So we're looking at some some high-end players here. Bergeron, Malkin, Letang, Spezza. These guys have all been stars at one point or another. Which one of those sentences that I just read out are you most comfortable saying, yeah, I think that's going to be true? I'm not allowed to pick all three. I feel like all are three you, could happen. Okay. Are you going to – I think you, all three with, – with, yeah. with confidence, you think all three of those things will happen? Okay. Yes. Yes. I don't – I think with the way Patrice Bergeron kind of handled uh, that last game against the Carolina Hurricanes, I don't see him playing for another team. 
I see him retiring. I know a lot of people in Montreal. Montreal comes up a lot with the first two uh, examples here. Uh, Latang, but yeah. Uh, yeah, well, obviously with that, I do not see Patrice Bergeron going to play for the Montreal Canadiens or any other franchise. He is a Boston Bruin through and through, and I can see him saying, you know what? Enough is enough. My career, my legacy is secured. I'm a Hall of Fame player. If I'm not going to play for Boston, I'm just going to hang him up and just call it a day. So I could see him retiring. Malkin Latang, like, I could see one of those guys moving. I could see the way with the Pittsburgh Penguins, the way that they're kind of going about their core, uh, them they had the last dance thing. It didn't work out. They will have to make some changes and restructure things. I could see maybe Latang maybe wanting more money. Maybe Malkin, they feel, you know what, you're a little bit banged up. It's time to move on and, and kind of get out from that contract. I could see one of those two guys moving. Jason Spezza, you know more than I do about what he's meant to the Ottawa Senators and the career that he's had playing in Dallas and now in Toronto. Uh, I hope I'm not missing any other team. Those are the teams I know for sure he played yep. for. Um, great soldier, man. Great career. Shame that he won't uh, have a Stanley Cup to his resume. Uh, but Jason Spezza, one of the better forwards uh, that I've seen in my lifetime. Uh, I still think about that amazing goal he scored against the Canadians. Makes that move to the inside. Uh, I forget, was it David Abisher he beat? But like, you know what I'm talking about. That was a really sick goal he scored on the Canadians as a set. Uh, Jason Spezza, great forward. Should have never been mo- moved out of Ottawa. Should have been a senator for life as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I could see him retiring as well. I don't see him back with the Leafs. Yeah. Uh, I think he went around, Jason Spezza went around Sheldon Sure. Yes. And then he beat Jose Theodore, I think. I think that's what yeah. it was, if memory. Yeah, not David Abisher. That was yeah. that was a little couple years too late. Yeah. So I got to say, like, I agree with you. I think it, Bergeron, the way he was hugging the teammates and, like, it didn't just seem like the end of a season, I'm the captain. It felt a little bit like the end of his career. And you, you go through what this guy – this guy has been through so much physically uh, in the course of his career – those you know those those long long playoff runs in eleven and thirteen and nineteen with Boston, um, you know the concussions early in his career like we forget about that like he he's been through that's the one I feel the most comfortable. With. I could see Malkin taking a discount to stay. I wouldn't even be shocked if Latang did the same. Like there's there's something about that Penguins team uh, and Jason Spezza. You know when when the Leafs were down by a goal. In Game Seven, in the final couple of minutes, Sheldon Keefe had Jason Spets on the ice on that six-on-five. Makes me think that maybe, just maybe, that that's enough fuel to think that he'll come back for another year at you know eight hundred thousand or whatever it is. Uh, but I, I'm with you. I think Bergeron that might be it, and I I can't yeah. see him going. But wouldn't you love it if he just went so like randomly signed for a year, like in Nashville? Like uh, Patrice Why? Bergeron, just I just want I like I like getting seeing people angry. Like, look, you're angry <laughs> at the idea that Patrice Bergeron would go to Nashville for a year, but that would that it, would make sense. Like, if he went to the yeah. Canadians, like I could understand people getting angry at that because it's like, but he's a Bruin. Why would he go play for his former agent? Nashville's just kind of random. It's not even like yeah, they're that, that close to a Stanley Cup championship. I, exactly. Like Patrice Bergeron signed for like Colorado at like 750. You're like, no. okay, he clearly wants to win a Stanley Cup and no. is clearly ring chasing. But I don't even see him doing that. Well, actually, you know what? Colorado <laughs> Avalanche in a past life with the Quebec Nordiques. And maybe that's just the closest that's he it. could get to playing for his childhood team. That could be the ultimate scenario. There you go. He just wants to play in those retro baby blues uh, that they, they rock sometimes. Yes. All right, Julian, man, this I have a feeling we might be uh, leaning on you here. The deeper the flames go in the playoffs, 
uh, the less time Haley wants to to spend with me uh, on on the podcast. So listen, I, I'm getting a sense. Why are, you, why are you saying it like that? You you miss Haley, don't you? Do you think we can get her as a guest next week? <laughs> Maybe for her own podcast. For her own podcast, there's like a forty percent chance we can get Haley to be a That's guest so on this funny. show. Yeah. <laughs> So like, hey, uh, thank you, sir, very much, special guest for for you know appearing yeah. on your own show. That's yeah. kind of funny. I, yeah. That'd be a funny, a fun bit to do. Yeah, but listen, uh, this was great. The hour flew by. Uh, thanks for 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 sitting in, and those are great conversations with Myrtle and and Rutherford. And I'm sure if we get you back uh, next Monday, there's going to be a whole host of uh, topics for us to hit on from uh, from round two. Then. Say the word uh, if you want me back on, I will gladly do so. There we go. We'll leave it there. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this Monday edition of The Athletic Hockey Show. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Leave us a rating review. We certainly appreciate that. You can subscribe to The Athletic Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Get all of our bonus content from our entire network. You're going to start with a 30-day free trial, and then it's just 99 cents a month after that. Right now, we got a killer deal going on at The Athletic. It is a dollar a month for six months when you visit theathletic.com slash hockey show.